0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Kim Katola, pro-life advocate, and we are talking about, um, in a sense, the fact that most women, quite frankly, really don't have the full story. Uh, When you're not given the entire story, it really is no choice at all, which is why even this notion of the quote-unquote pro-choice movement is, is a misnomer to begin with. Talk to us, Kim, about what is afoot in the state of Wisconsin uh, that might finally open up a little sunlight to, to at least give women a, uh, the opportunity to express whether or not they have been
0: coerced.
2: And uh, what I'm encouraged about on this uh, proposal, Craig, is that if a physician has reason to suspect a woman's in danger of being physically harmed, um, and there is a, an increased risk of violence if a woman is in a violent relationship, for example, Uh, the physician has to inform her uh, under this proposal in Wisconsin of services available to help domestic abuse victims. Um, A very simple conversation that a physician would have to simply make a referral and let a woman know that (laughs) she has choices, that she does not have to remain in an abusive relationship. And, you know, this is a shameful situation for women in that particular case. I mean, there can be other uh, ways that women are coerced and not, as you say, given all the range of choices that should be available to us. Um, employers might uh, make it subtly known that a, a pregnancy is unwelcome or threatens a job, and uh, the parents, of course, can uh, coerce their uh, teen daughters and even, you know, adult daughters that uh, they don't want a particular child in the family. Um, these tragic cases happen for lots of reasons, not just because of domestic violence, but Uh, those cases that that are uh, impacted by domestic violence that have that component could be now uh, prevented and some some choices might open up for women in Wisconsin if physicians uh, are compelled to have a conversation and tell women that they don't have to live that way, that someone is available to help them.
1: What is your sense in terms of the likelihood of this actually passing?
2: Well, you know, the the progressives and uh, the forces that are uh, the proponents of abortion uh, cloaked as reproductive freedom ha- have played that card before in 2004 when the Washington Post was doing a three-part series um, it, just a heartbreaking series they profiled the women and who they were and exactly how ha- the circumstances of their death when um, they were killed because they were pregnant um, and in response That piece in the Washington Post—it was a major uh, uh, act of investigative journalism. Uh, You know, the progressive forces said essentially the same thing. Well, they're just trying to take away women's rights for abortion. This uh, isn't—you know—these are rare cases, and uh, you know, they—they're not connected issues. And they've managed to play on people's fears that women would. Uh, have their freedoms somehow limited by protecting them from, from harm and by, as you say, Craig, letting them know that um, there are other options available. It, it would be cruel to just say to a woman, you must have this baby. But, in fact, the Crisis Pregnancy Center, the Pregnancy help Movement, as I like to think of them, uh, offer complete alternatives, uh, life skills and healthy relationships uh, coming alongside women and couples to empower them to become parents or to release the child for adoption. I love to hear your sponsors' um, announcements there because these are the true alternatives.
1: Absolutely, you know that's why this lawsuit in San Francisco is so horrifically disingenuous to suggest that because a crisis pregnancy center does not go into a long detailed speech about uh, abortion and its availability and the price, etc., etc., as if somehow to suggest that there's any woman. I mean, is it possible that there's an American woman at any age that does not know? That abortion exists that has not done the research or been told by a girlfriend, even if it's a teenager, that this is something that exists as a means of, of quote unquote, addressing even more cruelly put, eliminating the problem. I mean, this is where I'm shocked that whenever we talk about providing more information about the option not to abort and what that looks like and what the options may be there. The, the pro-abortion advocates always get upset about this. How can you possibly do that? You're trying to force women. You know, we're, we're watching the story out of uh, the Illinois Supreme Court now, where we're hoping that finally the the more leveled heads will prevail there in a, a law, the Illinois Parental Notice of Abortion Act, that was enacted clear back in 1995 and is yet to see the light of day because of a lawsuit contesting its constitutionality that simply says if If an underage girl is going to have an abortion, the parents at least have a right to be made aware of it.
2: Mm. I think, you know, when I I started reaching out to women who were harmed by abortion, as I was, uh, I, I truly had so little knowledge of what had been happening politically with abortion because I was so hurt by it emotionally, Craig, that I tuned out the news literally for decades. Uh, and, and then I had a, a spiritual awakening, and it's a spiritual renewal that's available to everyone through, through Christ our Lord. And I started wanting women to know this, that you know, the millions of women, the, the 25 or more million women who have experienced abortion don't need to keep suffering after it. Uh, the, the pushback and the blowback from the local community when I started uh, trying to get that message out Uh, in the Minneapolis area was stunning to me. Why do you care as an abortion provider that if a few of your clients feel emotional distress afterwards or spiritual unease, why do you care if someone wants to offer them help? Uh, To me, that was shocking. Why would you care? Wouldn't this be something that would enhance what you're doing? But it isn't about women, and it isn't about really offering women choices. It's all about protecting, as you said in the very beginning. It's all about protecting the abortion business. And you know, they get a few organizations like the Young Progressives who haven't I'm sorry but I don't think that they've thought it through. I can't believe that they would be as cynical to say, you know, that it's wrong to tell a woman you think is being threatened with violence that there's help available to her. I I just can't believe that they're that they're cruel in that way. I have to believe that they're either naive or they haven't thought it through and so they've just picked up the talking points of the people who who have a profit motive or have some other agenda in mind other than helping women. It's not about helping women and it never has
1: been. No, there, there's a few I think uh, fringe liberals that are kind of throwbacks to the sixties and seventies. They get excited over this topic because they feel as if it, it is able to sort of break the break the bonds of the responsibility of, of the totality of the responsibility of womanhood and motherhood that you know and sadly, I mean I the fact that men are able to impregnate a woman and then disappear from the scene and have no responsibility Responsibility whatsoever, I think, is horrific and shameful, and quite frankly, if they want to get laws together that will hold men accountable for their actions, uh, I'll support them 100%. That said, I think you're right. I think there's a handful of uh, liberal feminists out there that kind of see this as the cause du jour uh, and really haven't thought through the totality. When we talk about women's liberation, if you want to really liberate women, the the, the most surefire way to do it is by making sure that they have all of the information necessary, so they can make the right choices. And sadly, abortion on demand in America is not about making the right choices out of all or based on all of the information. But for a lot of purveyors of it, it's simply about making a lot of money. Kim Katola, thanks so much for the time and the insight.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, if you go to
1: the average bookstore, and I realize you have to hunt them down these days, but trust me, they still exist. If you go to the church growth section, or religious section, depending upon how your bookstore is organized, you'll find shelves there loaded with books on church growth. How to do it big, bold, brilliant, wide, and rapidly. But what if the idea of a section of books that took the opposite tenor, that instead of doing it big, bold, brilliant, wide, and rapidly, instead taught you how to do it slow, thoughtful, deep, and deliberate. You'd probably think the books were 90 to 100 years old, wouldn't you? I mean, after all, don't we live in a day and an age when everything that we do fast equates better? I mean, let, let's face it, we, we just, everything we do. The more that we can do, the more rapidly we can do it, that must be good. So if it applies to information, technology, food, cars, the Internet, why not faith? Why not indeed? My guest tonight, I think, would argue that um, fast is not always better. In fact, there's much in terms of the history of the church that would demonstrate just the opposite, that the approach of being slow, thoughtful, deep, and deliberate – also means a church that will be sustainable and a body of believers that will be deep in their faith, in their relationship with Christ. Christopher Smith is the editor of the Inglewood Review of Books and member of the Inglewood Christian Church Community outside of Indianapolis, co-author of a new book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. And Chris, great to have you on the program. Thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. I'm I'm trying to think the the pitch to your publisher on this. Uh, (laughs) There's got to have been either a stack of rejections or a few people that thought, clearly this guy has either lost his mind or um, uh, needs to have a serious talk with with somebody, uh, some church growth expert, because we know in 2014, fast is just the only way to do it.
3: Right. Yep. Um, Actually, we were pretty fortunate. We found an editor that uh, liked the idea um, from the very outset, and he basically coached us through the the whole the whole process so uh, we were very fortunate to find find an editor who thinks outside the box.
1: That thinking outside of the box, as much as it might seem to be uh, in terms of the way most of people that are involved in the church growth movement or have a heartbeat for all of this, is in fact not all that outside of the box, is it? In fact, I think right. there's a lot, of, a lot of evidence to demonstrate historically that for the bulk of the history of the church, uh, that thoughtful, slow, deep, deliberate approach is exactly what uh, got the church from uh, the time of Christ to where we're at today.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a long history of... of um of patient persistence uh in the Christian community. Uh but it, it tends to be, like you said, kind of more underground. <laughs> Uh, not the mainstream of church history.
1: This movement that we've seen, um, that, that seems as if, um, I don't know, it's, it's like franchising the kingdom of God like it were a McDonald's, you know. let sure, absolutely. Let's, let's put them up as quickly as we possibly can. I mean, nobody, and I'm not picking on McDonald's, but but any fast food restaurant, no serious, thoughtful person who really is a foodie thinks of these locations as a spot for fine dining. We're going to um, walk away with a culinary experience. Uh, we, we know what they are for what they are you want it fast quick Uh, that's what you do that you know that um, it's not going to be the kind of experience um, um, colonistically that you'll be thinking out above or or sharing with others for years to come seemingly just the opposite of what we want out of church that we do want it to be something that is going to be deep and meaningful and hopefully profound and sustaining Uh, and yet i'm i'm wondering wherein lies then this this creep toward doing it fast, equating better within the Church?
3: Well, I think it's coming from the larger culture. Uh, we, One of the things that we do in the book is kind of look at the history, we look briefly at the history of industrialization uh, and kind of the technological growth over the last 200 years, um, basically during the industrial and now the post-industrial age. Um, and basically one of the, the side effects of that sort of rise of industry and there's been I mean there's been some great things that have come out of that industry. I mean, many people were uh, saved from really, really uh, hard backbreaking work uh, through uh, the rise of industry uh, but but one of the things that has happened as that has kind of continued to grow and grow and expand uh, globally is that there's kind of been an expectation for for speed and for convenience uh, that has kind of crept into all of life um, it, as you mentioned into the food we eat and how we eat it and and also uh, we argue in the book into the way that we exist as churches um, and and yeah and we uh, I think it's mostly just kind of been uh, a lack of critical critical thinking and acting um, in the ways that we engage the larger culture uh, that has kind of uh, and, it, and again, it's kind of slowly infiltrated our churches. Uh, as you said in your introduction, uh, the church growth movement played a big part in that. And certainly, there was—I mean—there was a good intent uh, in the church growth movement uh, of trying to to grow churches, to spread the gospel of Christ, and bring more people into in, into our churches. Those are wonderful and noble noble goals, but. But because of the culture of uh, industrialization, the culture of speed and efficiency, um, the that that movement uh became focused more on the numbers than on the depth um, and and that that's the point at which it started to kind of turn and uh, move in a direction that's not not particularly helpful, we think.
1: Well, and, and uh, you know, not, not, not healthy, too, in a spiritual standpoint or in a lot of ways. I mean, let's face it, at the core, um, all, all of this dialogue, whether we talk about outreach, evangelism, church growth, um, discipleship, all comes down to one core issue, and that is the business of relationships. Oh, uh, whether we're talking about building relationships interpersonally between uh, family members and husbands and wives and kids and so on and so forth, building relationships with strangers to love them to Christ, uh, ultimately toward the, the the penultimate goal of a restored relationship with the Creator Himself, which is, of course, what He sent His Son to do, that substitutionary work on the cross on our behalf, so that we might be reconciled into a restored relationship with Him. And yet, we look at the world around us, and if anything, it seems to be marked by the notion that lasting relationships are a thing of the past because we move so fast and and indeliberately and 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 without a lot of of thought or care and as much as that has been the hallmark of of changing the way relationships are then i get, got to be a little bit scary thinking well my goodness if doing it rapid and and uh, um, big and bold has had an impact in, in so many ways on sustainability of relationships. What does it say about the sustainability, so to speak, of our relationship with the very God Himself?
3: No, no doubt. And that's uh, Craig. You've kind of hit on the reason that we actually chose the the name Slow Church and not just uh, Slow Christianity or Slow Faith. Um, but but we very intentionally chose the, the the language of Slow Church because what we believe, like you, for the reasons that you just stated, that uh, what God has been doing in the world and God continues to do in the world is is largely centered around the gathering of a people. And this is something that began in Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even Jesus, uh, when he started his ministry, uh, came of age and started his ministry, one of the first things that he did was to gather a community of disciples around him. And we believe that it's in community, in our churches, uh, that we... That we can start to recover what it means to be in meaningful relationships um, if we, if we're willing to slow down and be attentive to to what we've been called to be um, so so yeah I, I, I'm, I think you're absolutely right that that relationship is at the heart of what what God is doing in the world and what, what the the heart of what we're called into as followers of Jesus.
1: So there's a little, literal troubling aspect to this, that this rapid results approach that we take today, and it's everywhere, it's pervasive everywhere within culture and, and business and society, and of course it's crept into church, that it seems to be this focus on rapid results at the expense of long-term sustainability, and there's a number of layers in which this becomes very troubling, not only in terms of sustainability, for example, of a new church plant. How many churches come and go and come and go and come and go? And that really the way God wants us to, to do community, if at the core the church is really about the neighborhood or the community. And then the other question is, if there is such a profound impact on the sustainability of church, how can we not help but wonder whether or not that might have an impact on the sustainability of our relationship with God. Oh, not that he would flutter or fail, (laughs) but that we, from our perspective, might be just inclined to give up at a moment's notice. I mean, let's face it, largely in the westernized church, we're we're not really accustomed to pain or sacrifice or um, agony. In fact, we work very hard to avoid all of that which is curious because the Bible says much about suffering for our faith and persecution for his namesake. A lot more to talk about. Christopher Smith is with us today. He's co-authored Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. We'll take a brief time out. In fact, let's not take it brief. We'll make it slow. (laughs) we got traffic. Maybe you've got that slow experience in your life already today. Take a deep breath. And we'll return to more of our conversation as Lifeline
0: continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We're talking today with author Chris Smith. He has co-authored with John Patterson a new book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. And uh, this breaches into so many aspects of our faith. Uh, the sustainability of same, not just our faith, but also local congregations, um, uh, the body of Christ. And, you know, I I guess in a day and an age, as we've been suggesting, Chris, where we have seen the emphasizing of um, uh, quantity over quality, this has really been uh, almost disastrous at certain levels to every aspect of, of faith within Western Christianity, hasn't it?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, this is really, really broadly reaching and I mean, and honestly, it's part of the reason that I mean, one of the things that we kind of have experienced ourselves and have seen elsewhere um, is simply that uh, we tend to compartmentalize our faith. Uh, that our faith has become more and more uh, not pertinent to the rest of our life. What we do on Sunday is kind of separate—a separate thing from what goes on. Uh, in our in our home or in at our office place um whatever that may be um and, and we we don't think that that's w- what uh we have been called into I mean we think that God is reconciling all things in christ uh, and that that the wisdom of the gospel is is pertinent um to our to our family life to our work life and then part of the problem is that we've kind of uh kind of fragmented home from work from church from uh from maybe other social activities or whatever, but um, and and those spheres of our lives don't uh, interact with each other very much. Um, and I mean, part of what we're encouraging as we slow down is to to allow God to to heal some of those uh, fragmentations and find ways for for our lives not to be
1: uh, quite so
3: fractured.
1: And that fracture, that fragmentation, seems to be clearly an outgrowth of the emphasis on quantity over quality. I mean, let's face it, if we're left with a choice of either going deeper or going quicker, um, culture today has sort of um, programmed us. We have been... uh, uh, almost like Pavlov's dog, trained to respond to the quicker, oh, yeah. not realizing how much we're missing in the going deeper. I mean, is it any wonder that we compartmentalize then and we relegate God to a brief hour-long experience on Sunday mornings and maybe for, uh, you know, a half hour or so uh, Wednesdays, if if he's that fortunate, because we don't see the value in the integration of our relationship with the Lord in every aspect of our life in every day of our life, because, Let's face it; we've never, perhaps, ever seen the what that means to to be modeled in front of us.
3: Sure, no, absolutely. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, part of the part of the reason for that again is the the advertising culture uh, that we're in the midst of that that always uh, encourages encourages us to seek more, more, more. We need we need a new car. We need a new house. We need. Uh, a vacation, uh, whatever, whatever uh, the advertisers are selling, um, but but, but the, kind of the collective effect of that is always encouraging us to to desire more, more, more. And what we need, I think, is is a, is a transformation of our desires, um, uh, a transformation to 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 not desire more, but to desire to 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 go deeper in the, the relationships that that we already have.
1: Well and doesn't it become a vicious cycle too? Because the more and more and more that takes us to a more shallower degree, it's sort of the the quick high, the quick fix um, in life, at so many levels, becomes terribly unfulfilling. I would suspect oh, yeah. after a while, and so then you're you're motivated to go after more because at the end of the day, you're you're trying to to obtain something that that is not a product of the the faster, the quicker, the more, but of the slow and the deliberate and the deep.
3: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. One of the things that we focus on in a chapter later in the book is the the practice of gratitude, of being thankful, and I think that's that's one of the the ways that God has provided for us to kind of resist uh, this or to, to, um, to start to put us on a journey toward healing and, and being transformed out of this culture that always wants more and more and more, to, to learn to be grateful for, for the things that, uh, that God has provided for us, uh, for the relationships that God has provided for us, and, and the, the resources that God has provided us with, uh, both as individuals and as congregations um and And I think if we the the greater uh, the we learn to practice thankfulness, gratitude, um, I think that we'll start to to see some see some transformation.
1: It really comes down to the sense of being grateful, which causes you to pause and look at all that is around you. what What's the old phrase about stopping to smell the roses? Oh yeah we're We're rushing down the street and along the way uh, we don't have time to capture the sights nor the fragrance because we're just too busy thinking about uh, what we're doing next, what we're doing tomorrow, what we're doing in twenty minutes um, I, I guess the big question is since that sort of manic approach to life is so inbred in so many of us, I mean, I would wonder even as we're talking right now, and there are people that are listening to our conversation on the drive home who even though they recognize the danger and the illegality of browsing text messages are doing (laughs) it as we speak because they just can't simply can't wait to see what that text message might say How, how do we get off of this roller coaster ride to pause long enough to say we need to do some serious introspection here about our priorities and where we give time
3: no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean just I mean just the example that you gave of of checking text ma- te- text messages while you're driving. I mean, that's a that's a potential uh that has the potential of death for for you and and someone and others around you. Um and uh, it's interesting that the Bible, I mean, kind of talks about uh the connection between uh the way of sin and death. And uh, and and I think that that's, I mean, part of the consequences of of living too fast um, is, I mean, is ultimately uh, death. Um, and, and maybe uh, it's not always going to happen. Hopefully, it won't always happen. But but there's always that potential there uh, when we're trying to do too much and not being attentive uh, to what's going on around us, particularly in a culture where we use, like ours today, where we use heavy machinery like cars and and so forth and i mean there's the grif- the risk is well, there's
1: also, I think, a, a degree of risk, as I use that as an example from a spiritual standpoint, because as you talk about in the book Slow Church, this culture of unreflective speed also means that we might be inclined to just kind of, at the surface, buy into any whim, any uh, doctrine that comes our way because it sounds okay. Or, yeah, I've read a little bit of Scripture. That seems to be in harmony. And so we don't take the time to research. We're, we're not fruit inspectors. We don't tr- test the spirits to see if they are of God. There, there are so many aspects of what we are are warned to do in a slow, thoughtful, deliberate fashion, from a spiritual growth standpoint, from a relation with Christ standpoint. That is it. Any wonder that we have not only just sloppy religion, sloppy relationships, but then uh, so often, so many within the church today are just pulled to and fro at any—pardon me—any whim of, of false teaching, because it's a culture of unreflective speed.
3: I mean, you go into a Christian bookstore, and then that's <laughs> that sort of sloppiness is uh, is reflected. I, I I don't I'm not going to name any particular names, uh, but but that sort of kind of uh, I mean everything from prosperity gospel to uh, uh, self-help sorts of stuff. I mean, it's all there, and it's all it's all really not that reflective. Um, it's just kind of a, a quick fix of what will make us feel good.
1: If you've just tuned into our conversation, we're visiting today with Chris Smith, co-author of Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. We'll talk a bit about what this means, how we can slow down the pace, and what the benefits can be, not only in terms of our own um, family well-being and and mental health, but ultimately for spiritual well-being and the well-being of our communities. We'll come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We're talking about slow church today, not just the book, but the entire notion. This is the, the polar opposite of this uh, fast approach that we've taken to rapid growth that certainly does a lot in terms of, of sort of the quick um, flash-in-the-pan, uh, brilliant moment uh, of success, but then, of course, leaves many questions pertaining to the sustainability of not just one 's faith, but frankly, of the community of the body of believers, and as we 're learning from our guest today co author Chris Smith, um, quite frankly this this rapid, fast sort of the uh, the franchise approach to Christianity doesn 't do a lot in terms of um, spiritual depth of individuals, let alone the sustainability of the church, and maybe therein lies the problem, that we're learning that the, the rapid results today are, in fact, at the expense of long-term sustainability.
3: Yes, definitely, Craig. I mean, we see that, like you were saying earlier, that church plants uh, tend to have a lifespan of maybe a couple years. And also, I think part of the issue questions of sustainability, um, one of the questions that doesn't get looked at so much uh, is, is the ways in which uh, churches move uh, from one neighborhood uh, to another, um, and what the what the impact might be of that sort of tr- uh, transition uh, on the neighborhoods um, that are left. I mean, I live in an urban neighborhood in, here in Indianapolis, and we've kind of seen the effects, the sort of vacuum that's left uh, when a church uh, or any other institution of business, uh, but but especially in this case, in churches, um, when they move out of a neighborhood, um, and. Uh, and it, it can be, it can be uh, pretty powerful, and it's something that churches don't think about a lot, about uh, what, what has happened uh, in the places that they leave behind.
1: Mm. So that loss of commitment to a neighborhood, and oftentimes there's a disaster left behind because then what might have been uh, the only beacon of hope in a particular community, and this certainly has been very true in a lot of inner cities, um, sure. completely uh, collapses, doesn't it?
3: Oh, yes. Yes, Definitely. Definitely. It was. It's interesting. Our church, the church I'm part of, Anglo-Christian Church here in, Indiana, in the near, urban near east side of Indianapolis, uh, we're 118 years old. Uh, but we've basically been in the same place uh, for for all of that history. Um, and uh, at one point, uh, at kind of a low point in the size of our congregation, the history of our congregation, uh, we were faced with the decision, do we stay in this neighborhood or do we move out uh, to the suburbs where a lot of our members are? And the leaders of the church decided at that point that it was very important for us to stay. And basically for the last 25 years or so since that decision, we've been on a journey of trying to to understand what it means for us to be a church in this place since we made a very intentional decision to stay here.
1: A lot of times churches will move because they feel overwhelmed by many of the problems that are facing a neighborhood and, quite frankly, maybe feel ill-equipped to be able to ascertain what those problems are and to best address them. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of what we've seen in the recent passing of Robin Williams, who is, um, because of his connection to the San Francisco Bay Area, has been sure. quite a, an ongoing topic here of the last couple of weeks. Uh, some folks might have seen um, comments made uh, the other night by David Letterman, um, who uh, knew Robin early on in his career. And uh, Mr. Williams had been a guest on The Letterman Show apparently about 50 times down through uh, the, the years. And at the end of his very emotional, moving tribute to him, uh, had made a remark about, well, if he'd only knew about how much pain Robin was in, and it dawns on me that we in the church maybe are guilty often of the same thing, that we are too busy and moving too fast to notice when others around us are hurting, the very ones that God would call upon us to bring healing to or hope to or his gospel to. And maybe, you know, what, uh, what was remarked by David Letterman last night regarding Robin Williams is indicative of a place where a lot of us in the church are at today, We're just moving too fast to notice those around us that are really hurting.
3: Oh no doubt, no doubt. I think you're you're definitely hitting on something there, Craig. Um, that I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating to us is that I mean, you just look at you talk. We talked about earlier, a little bit earlier about the franchising uh, aspect of it, and you look at a McDonald's or you look at a Starbucks or a Home Depot or whatever, and those are those sorts of institutions look pretty much the same whether you're in San Francisco or San Antonio or wherever else. Um, and I think that a lot of times uh, churches can be that way. They can look and feel pretty much the same wherever, wherever they are. And, they, and churches have kind of become almost um, uh, unattentive to, uh, to the places uh, where they exist. Um, and again, that's part of the, the sort of fragmentation. Uh, churches have come to see themselves as kind of sp- part of spiritual life. Uh, not necessarily engaged in the life of the communities in which they exist, um, and I, I think that that's—I think it's in that sort of engagement with the communities where we exist where the the wisdom of the gospel is, as, and the the call to to be peacemakers and all those other sorts of things that that we're called to in Christ. Uh, those, that's where that witness is borne out uh, in in engagement with with our neighbors. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that, that we there are many ways that we've become unaware of the the pain and suffering around us.
1: And, you know, even closer to home, I mean, again, that that rush means that there's a risk of well-being to family and our own mental health, our own spiritual well-being, because we're not taking the time uh, to go deep enough because uh, we're just not programmed that way.
3: Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that I don't, I don't want to overstep <laughs> Here, but but it's interesting to me that there's a correlation uh, between our continuing to move faster and faster, and and the rise in uh, mental illness, for instance. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not saying necessarily that they're connected, but it's interesting that uh, that they seem to uh, follow very similar uh, curves.
1: Um, is a lot of this also tied into not just a desire to do things faster and more instantaneous, but also coupled with this, indicative of a lack of maturity that is maybe as a as a watchword, uh, tremendously impatient, and a culture where on an increasing basis we wish to avoid not only work, but any pain. I mean, it used to be, you know, a, a good hard day's worth of labor mm-hmm. where you came home with tired muscles and, and completely beat. That was, you had a sense of satisfaction and reward about that. And today it, it's almost as if that has shunned. And so if we're not willing to, to exercise our physical muscles and experience a little bit of, you know, stretching pain in the experience, um, I wonder if that's indicative of, of the same thing when it comes to not willing to, being willing to spirit to exercise our spiritual muscles that we're afraid of avoiding pain in any aspect of life
3: oh yeah absolutely i I think that that's one of the things that we talk about in the book that i mean the way of jesus uh, is the the way of compassion i mean just the incarnation itself of jesus coming to earth uh was an act of compassion jesus entered into all the pain and suffering and the joys of course too but but the pain and suffering of the human experience and that's what we're called to do Uh, with one another in our church congregations and with our neighbors. And I think that what we're seeing, I talked a little bit before about kind of the history of industrialization and how we've become more and more uh, impatient and have more greater and greater expectations for speed. But one of the other effects of it is, like you were saying, that it it conditions us to to want to avoid work and suffering. We look at the rise of the, in the mid-20th century, the rise of the quote-unquote labor-saving device, uh, and that's a one uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying that we should not use any sort of electrical gadget or whatever. Uh but but we do need to be aware of what what the cost of that is and what if we're saving labor to what end are we saving labor? Um and and the effect of that I believe is exactly what you were describing that we 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 are having greater and greater difficulty entering into the the pains and sufferings of others because we've been conditioned to avoid pain and suffering at all costs.
1: And of course the irony is that pain and suffering also translates into notions of persecution um, and, you know, somehow the notion that we as the Church in America are uniquely um, given a pass on the idea of pain and suffering or persecution, when the Scripture, of course, doesn't say that at all. And um, there is a dynamic that speaks quite heavily to uh, that lack of being willing to to suffer for His name's sake, as Chris- Scripture calls us to, indicative, too, of this notion of kind of being uh, uh, the Church, that's what's the old saying, ten miles wide and an inch deep?
3: Right. No. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, again, I don't think that we should necessarily seek out persecution, but I mean, I think that there are ways that our desires for comfort, uh, uh, kind of compromises our willingness to, to speak the truth in, in difficult situations, uh, whether that's in the public square or in our congregations. Um, and I think that has, that has uh, ramifications.
1: Our conversation today with Chris Smith. He is co-author of a new book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. If you are someone who is a uh, student of uh, everything that is fast and rapid and you wish to overemphasize a, a, a quantity, quantity rather over quality, this is probably not a book for you. If, on the other hand, you're somebody who would rather not go quicker in your relationship with God but go deeper, then this indeed can be a book that can be a tremendous eye-opener not only for your own relationship with Christ but at the family level and at the community level. The book, again, Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. Newly published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area. Not in the rapid church growth section, though, I might add. (laughs) And, of course, on Amazon.com. And our thanks to co-author Chris Smith for being with us on this edition of Lifeline.